Good morning, everyone. Happy Lord's Day. It's nice to see all of you. Thank you. We are going to look at Psalm 7. And I, I know this sounds silly. I'm already um, feeling like this is going too fast. I know we have 143 to go. <clears throat> but uh, I don't know if I'll ever do this again. So I'm trying to savor every week. I hope you are as well. So in Psalm 7, that's where we're going to begin our time. So let's, let's pray and ask the Lord to begin our Lord's Day. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open a, a precious and delightful psalm to us, one that is important because it teaches us how to live in a world filled with injustice. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that you would begin to open our minds, our hearts, our wills to hear, to accept, to receive, and to obey the Word of God. Help us to be not hearers only, but doers as well. I pray that we begin this Lord's Day now with a decision to set our affections on you and you alone, to make this truly a day for the Lord. And I pray that this would help toward that end. We pray that your words would penetrate our hearts and make us more like Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So in Psalm 7, we're going to deal with justice, or really with injustice. And you've experienced this as a Christian. You've experienced times where you're unfairly characterized, you're misrepresented, you're slandered. You may even experience terrible suffering at the hands of people who believe something about you, treat you poorly, look down on you, because and only because someone else has tainted their view of you. That's a hard, bitter pill to swallow. This is the corrupting talk that Ephesians 4.29 warns against. And it's one of the worst feelings. It's a helpless feeling. It's, it's, it's an out-of-control feeling. And this is why the sin of reviling, of verbally exerting power over others, this is so often characterized in Scripture as being indicative of an unbeliever. The sin of reviling is serious. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, revilers are characterized as those who, quote, will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you are in the habit of unfairly characterizing others, you understand you're putting yourself in the category of acting like an unbeliever. And so it's that serious. It is that dark a sin. And you've experienced this undoubtedly, being unfairly characterized or slandered. It can have real-life consequences. It can have life-altering consequences. Uh, The loss of a job. It can be the loss of your church even. The loss of a previously close relationship. And these consequences can last for years. They might even last for a lifetime. And in the middle of that emotional wrenching, your soul cries out for justice. You want the truth to be known. And in some situations, the more you try to tell the truth, the more you just look like the, the thing that they're saying you are. And so it becomes an impossible situation. Just a little inside track here. As a pastor, um, this is a relatively regular occurrence, uh, particularly in our church here as our messages make, our way and make their way into arenas outside these walls. The regularity of mischaracterization is actually pretty regular now. You cannot imagine some of the nasty emails I got after the influencers conference um, saying, you said this. Like, actually, I said the opposite of that. But uh, that's okay. I, I, I don't care. 
the occasional times, which happen to all pastors and elders, when someone doesn't care for the counsel or the shepherding, this happens on occasion that if I don't care for the counsel or shepherding of my elders, then I'm going to go on a campaign of slander and abuse to anyone who will listen. Um, as elders, we've just gotten used to the fact that that's part of the ministry. That's just part of what you deal with. So you've experienced that. Some of you experienced it at work. There's a, it's a horrible feeling to have your reputation in the place you make money um, slammed and put down. It's a gut-wrenching feeling, and it's, it's one that just, just knots you up of being misrepresented. And the author of Psalm 7, the writer of Psalm 7, David, he was no exception. This is exactly the situation he found himself in. That the reviling against him was so intense that it literally put his life in danger for a period of years. David had once been the joy of King Saul's court. He was a hero in battle to the whole nation. Now he was the object of Saul's intense jealousy and his rage to the point that Saul was chasing after David with an entire army to try to kill him. So David and his men are on the run. They're in the wilderness of Maon. And 2 Samuel 23 and 24 records what happens next. Saul and his men and David and his men are actually ending up on opposite sides of a mountain. And they're, they're very close to one another. And it's, it's a tense situation. It would have made a, a great scene in a movie. But they're close and there is a, a tension that builds in which Saul and his men, many more than David and his men, are about to trap uh, David uh, strategically. That David's going to have no escape. And I said it was first, uh, 2 Samuel 23 and 24. It's 1 Samuel. But right at that moment, when, when Saul is about to close in, in God's providence, a messenger came to Saul and said, the Philistines have just made a raid into part of our land. So Saul had to abandon his pursuit of David. But after Saul had chased the Philistines out, he took 3,000 men to the wilderness of Engedi because David was laying low there. David had, had run to a new wilderness. And in the midst of looking for David, Saul went alone into a nondescript cave to use God's natural private restroom. That's the best way to put that, I suppose. And inside the cave, in God's providence, hidden further back in the darkest recesses of the cave, were David and his several hundred men. Hidden right there. David's men encouraged him. He said, this is your moment. This is the time. In other words, he could kill Saul easily. All he had to do was, was go up to him and, and take care of this. And so you recall that David came behind Saul and quietly cut off the edge of Saul's outer robe. And even with that, David was guilt-ridden over it. He, he just felt guilty. 1 Samuel 24, 6. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of Yahweh that I should do this thing to my Lord, the anointed of Yahweh, to send forth my hand against him since he is the anointed of Yahweh. In other words, David refused to take vengeance into his own hands. And he didn't want to dishonor God even if it would have benefited him immediately. So he wouldn't dishonor God. Incidentally, David's men argued with him. They still wanted him to go after Saul. He still had an opportunity. Saul was just making his way down this hillside by himself. 
First Samuel 24, 8 says this, David tore his men to pieces with his words. He tore them to pieces. He didn't allow them to go up against Saul. He said, no, basically over my dead body, you will not go after the king. Instead, David called out after Saul from a distance. And he declared, I will not raise my hand against you. He made a declaration. Saul had been listening to bad advisors. He'd been listening to men who were provoking jealousy uh, to the point that Saul genuinely believed that David was trying to usurp his throne. And that was never the intention. David never made that overture whatsoever. And so David makes a speech to Saul. And it is a, a weighty speech. It's a somber speech. And I'd like to read it to you. It's found, and you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. In 1 Samuel 24, verse 9, David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to do you evil? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that Yahweh had given you today into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you. But my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not send forth my hand against my Lord, for he is the anointed of Yahweh. See, my father, see, Indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. So you can imagine that scene. David's holding up this little triangle of cloth or whatever, and and Saul, reaching down, sees that it's been cut from his own robe. What a moment! For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, know and see that there is no evil or transgression in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May Yahweh judge between you and me and may Yahweh avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? After a dead dog? After a single flea? In other words, David's saying, I'm nobody. Why are you coming after me? I'm, I'm your harp player. That's it. And he finishes this speech, Therefore, Yahweh be judge and execute justice between you and me. And may he see and plead my cause and execute justice for me to escape from your hand. This is the situation, which is the backdrop against which David writes Psalm 7. This is where he is. And in Psalm 7, David makes this same request. He requests justice. And in Psalm 7, David really gives us a model prayer of how to pray when you're in the midst of injustice, when you're in the midst of slander, when you're in the midst of unfairness. And so I'd like to divide this model prayer into four parts. The first part I'll call a cry for deliverance. A cry for deliverance. We'll start with the superscription. A shigion of David, which he sang to Yahweh concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Now, let me just start here. This, this strange word, shigion or shigion, however you want to say it in, in English. This is a, a word that means a percussive or, uh, or uh, inflamed song. That it's not la 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 la. It's da 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 da. It's it's violent, it's aggressive, it's percussive, it's meant to have rhythm to it. So th- this isn't David just strumming his heart. This is, bring out the drums for this one. This is an aggressive song. 
Why? Because he's asking for injustice and David is angered, and rightly so. Which he's saying to Yahweh concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled about who is Cush and what are the words that he spoke. Here is the best guess of scholars, and I I would agree with this. Now, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines... Remember, he was chasing David and he has to leave to pursue the Philistines. He was told, saying, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Who told him? Cush the Benjaminite. Basically, maybe even been a friend of David's who who, uh, ratted him out and said, here's where he's hiding. So you can hear the injustice as we read through this. The first part of this model prayer, a cry for deliverance, verse 1 O Yahweh, my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. Now, you have to understand, remember David's tactic, he only has one strategy, and that's to hide. Because he won't go against the king, he won't try to, he's not trying to usurp the throne, he's just trying to survive. And so all he's doing is hiding. And it, it, it must have been a horrible feeling that he found this great place to hide. He, he switched uh, wildernesses. I mean, while Saul's away fighting the Philistines, what a great opportunity to just literally go someplace else completely. And it's a big land and to find him would have been nearly impossible. And on top of that, he finds a cave. Now, here we have the intersection between man's evil and God's sovereignty, right? Because in man's evil, the wilderness of Gedi. David was told, or or Saul was told, that's where David is. In the sovereignty of God, out of all the caves in this area, Saul picked the one that David is hiding in. So you see that intersection there. But you can sense the growing feeling that David has of being surrounded. He's outnumbered. His tactical options are dropping really, really fast. And he pictures Saul and his army like a lion coming to tear him to pieces. I mean, David is literally reduced to hiding in a cave. That says all other options are done. And if Saul had brought his men with him into the cave, that could have been the end for David. No escape, no deliverance, no options. So David begins this prayer with just this heartfelt cry for God to help him. He declares that he has no strategy, he has no option. God alone is his option. Now, David certainly did his best. He was very strategic. He was a military mind of the highest quality. He had hundreds of fighting men with him. He evaded capture with great shrewdness. But Saul relentlessly pursued him and David was facing what some have called an Alamo moment. That it became very apparent that he and his men may die fighting down to the last man. And can I tell you, I I love the fact that in the midst of this injustice, this time of just almost hopelessness, that David just starts off saying, God, I need help. There's not a specific request here. It's just, I need help. And I think that's a very uh, comforting thing to do. And what I love here is that God doesn't give any rebuke to David. He could have. He could have given a negative commentary. God could have potentially corrected David. Don't you remember Goliath? Uh, Don't you remember the actual lions? He says, he'll tear my soul like a lion. David, you've killed lions. I helped you. Or why would you say there is none to deliver? God doesn't rebuke him. He just allows David to say, I need help. 
David is allowed to simply run to God, fall at his feet, crying out for help. Now, many of us have a tendency in prayer, and I certainly have done this, and that is the tendency to try to help God out with options for our rescue. Maybe to give God three or four really good ideas as to precisely how he could work in a, in a situation like this. But David doesn't do this. Now, later on in the psalm, he's going to appeal to God's justice in a general sense. But in this particular moment, he doesn't. He, all he does is say, I need help. And he doesn't offer options. My reasoning in looking at this is that David can't offer options because in his mind, there aren't any. Now, let me tell you how I came to that conclusion. The person who is causing injustice is Saul. You remember I read you the speech, David's impassioned speech from 1 Samuel 24, and David called Saul my father. You recall just a few chapters earlier, David had married Saul's daughter. This is family. All he wanted to do was honor Saul. Saul's daughter was given to David as a reward. David was part of the family. And so there, there are no good options. This is not some nameless bad guy off the street that's going after David. This is his father-in-law, somebody that he, that he cherishes, that he honors, that he respects, that he's served. And so David doesn't cry out to God to smite Saul or to punish him severely. He just leaves justice to God alone. And, and I think what's really important about this prayer in verses 1 and 2, this cry for deliverance, is that David has no idea what to do. He has no idea what to ask for, so he just asks God to intervene. And I think that's a very comforting place to be, a cry for deliverance. The second part in this model prayer in a time of injustice, we could call a time of self-examination. A time of self-examination. And this actually, I, I think, kind of takes the reader by surprise. Verse 3. O Yahweh my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to him who is at peace with me or have plundered my adversary without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life down to the ground and cause my glory to dwell in the dust. Selah. Now David isn't claiming sinlessness here. He is recounting his own heart though that even when all he did was to cut off a piece of Saul's robe, he, he was bothered in his conscience. And so in this time of self-reflection, David makes the stakes extremely high. This is a very black and white uh, offer that he makes here. He declares that he, if he has acted in any way to take vengeance on his own, any undue vengeful act, if he's acted unjustly, and he asks God, let the very enemy that has come against me overtake me, destroy me, and kill me. And he says, cause my glory to dwell in the dust. What does this mean? It means David is saying, not only let my enemy overtake me, let him destroy my reputation. Let him cause my glory to be forever tainted. Those are high stakes. I remember an example of this actually happening Many of you remember the sad end to legendary Penn State football coach Joe Paterno. Some consider him the greatest football coach of all time. And it was revealed that he had fully known for years about sexual abuse happening in his football program. He was fired, his reputation completely destroyed, and he died 74 days later. 
what a horrifying end to a life where he spent 61 years in the same job. David is saying this. God, if you find that I have acted wickedly or unjustly toward my enemy, let my life end as a total utter failure. Always known as a failure. I think that's a pretty interesting counterpoint to dealing with a time of injustice, isn't it? Because that's not our tendency. The cry for deliverance, we understand. That makes sense. Thank you, Pastor Steve, for helping me with that. I need the cry of deliverance. But this is different. Now David examines himself and is essentially asking the question, but how have I treated those who have acted unjustly toward me? Have I had integrity in my dealings? Have I left justice to the Lord? Unless as a king, I am the arm of justice for God, which a king was sometimes called to be. Our sovereign God brings times of injustice into your life and into mine, at least partly as a prod for you to examine your own heart, to be wary of speaking or acting in vengeance or in retribution. Now what the other person does doesn't mean you get to begin responding sinfully. And so if you're experiencing injustice and you engage in a time of self-examination, please believe me, it takes a lot of the sting out of the injustice because now your focus is not on that other person because you can't do anything about them. But you can do something about your own heart and how you respond. And yay, even maybe saying, thank you, Lord, for bringing this opportunity for me to examine my own heart. The focus is less on the unjust person now. It's more on just pleasing the Lord with your righteous response. The first part of this model prayer in the time of injustice, a cry for deliverance. The second part, a time of self-examination. And then the third part, which we would expect, we call a request for support. A request for support. Verse 6, Arise, O Yahweh, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the fury of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. David's request here in verse 6 is arise, O Yahweh, in your anger. David does not say arise, O Yahweh, because of my anger. In other words, David is acknowledging, and this is so helpful for all of us, David's acknowledging that when injustice happens, listen carefully, God is always the most offended party every time. So he says, arise because of your anger. Then and only then does David say, arouse yourself for me. He places himself as a second priority. And that is fully appropriate. And now David creates a a picture in the mind's eye of God gathering all people of the earth to judge and to give justice, to reveal the truth. He he builds this picture, verse 7. Let the congregation of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. Yahweh judges the peoples. Give justice to me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous, for the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. Now again, in verse 8, David isn't asserting perfect self-righteousness of any kind. He's not doing that. He's placing himself on God's mercy concerning the situation that he hasn't tried to cover up his own evil. He hasn't tried to act with a lack of integrity. He has had integrity to the very best of his ability. And David knows this. He literally could have just snuck up behind Saul and beheaded him. 
He had the sword to do that. He, he had a large sword. He also had a small sword, a, a little curved sword that he could have come up, grabbed Saul by the hair and slit his throat before Saul ever knew what happened. He could have done that. And David didn't. He took that same knife, incredibly sharp, and just sliced a little bit of garment. And so David knows that he has been filled with integrity. And so because of that, he's requesting support. And I'll do a little digression here. It becomes really difficult to request support from the Lord when you have not acted integrity with integrity. Now you have to deal with that issue first. You have to confess that first. David's requesting support. He calls God to action. He says, lift yourself up. Arouse yourself for me. And he says, over them, return on high. This is a, a phrase that means return to the judge's bench. And so he's calling God to act. It's sort of a, what's called an anthropomorphism, attributing human qualities to God to, to get up and to walk and to do something. And so that brings the question again, and I think this is one of the most important lessons from Psalm 7. If you're suffering injustice, have you acted with integrity? Because if you haven't, at least for the moment, the main issue now is your repentance. That becomes the issue. Your integrity, your character, as one theologian said, just because someone else fires the first shot doesn't mean you get to abandon your holiness. Verse 9 is as much a reminder to David as it is to his enemies that God tests the hearts and minds. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. That yes, even in the midst of injustice, it's possible for the victim of that injustice to sin his way into God's disfavor instead of throwing himself on God's mercy and God's justice. We're going to talk about this more uh, in, in a few moments, but you know, you can save yourself a lot of trouble if you simply believe that God is the one who brought this situation to you. That, that saves so much trouble because if, if he's the one who did it, then it was God's lesson for you to learn. Self-examination is the second part. The third part, request for support. Here's the fourth part of our prayer. A confidence in justice. There's a confidence in justice. And, and now there's sort of a switch in mood as we see often in the Psalms. And David's going to give basically a theological dissertation. And I've divided this into three topics that David really expounds on. The justice of God, the sinfulness of man, and the consequences of unrepentant sin. And I'll repeat those. First of all, he gives a, a good teaching on the justice of God. Verse 10. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. David relates the role that God is taking with him, that God is a shield, that God will judge righteously. Why? Because again, God is the most indignant party of all concerned. It's his righteousness that's been violated. Listen, if you wonder if God's going to do anything when you've been slandered, when you've been treated unjustly, you can stop wondering. That's the wrong question. Because if you think you felt angry, that's nothing compared to the infinite anger that God feels when he's sinned against. And so you don't have to worry about that. Your little anger pales in comparison to God's indignation. The justice of God. David also gives some teaching on the sinfulness of man. The sinfulness of man. Verse 14 Behold, he travails with wickedness and he conceives mischief and gives birth to falsehood. 
These are word pictures, first of conception, that's what travails means. Uh, Pregnancy, I I think conceives could have been better translated because it actually means to be pregnant already, and then birth. So you have conception, pregnancy, and birth. Why is this word picture here? This is a picture of placing 100% complete responsibility for sin on the sinner, the sinner alone. The sinner conceived the sin. He's pregnant with the sin. He gives birth to the sin. Now, your New Testament ears are going, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? James 1, beginning in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. So David is very clear. The sinfulness of man is solely man's responsibility. Why is this important to David? This keeps him from blaming whom? Blaming God. The justice of God, the sinfulness of man. David gives teaching on one more theological concept, the consequences of unrepentant sin. David paints what I think is one of the most terrifying word pictures in all the Bible of God's retribution. Verse 12, If a man does not repent, he, that is God, will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and prepared it. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. This is a picture of God with all weapons drawn, ready to issue justice at any moment. He has a sharpened sword. He has a bent bow. He has deadly weapons. This is an interesting phrase. It literally means vessels that carry death. He has all kinds of things to carry death to his victims. And he has arrows with fiery shafts, which is an interesting picture because uh, historically, if you know anything about history, um, ancient weapons would set arrowheads on fire to uh, set fire to things. This is a picture of the entire arrow shaft on fire as well. It's like as much judgment, as much fire as can be brought. What, what is this? This is an ancient Near Eastern picture of a mighty warrior who is just strapped with every weapon possible. They're all drawn. They're all ready to go. It, it's almost a ridiculous picture. There's a sharp sword. There's a bow that's bent with fiery arrows on fire already. There's all kinds of other deadly weapons Vessels of death ready to go. God places responsibility for these consequences squarely on the sinner. So not only does David place the responsibility for sin on the sinner, God does as well. Verse 15, He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will return upon his own skull. He's made the pit. He falls into a hole that he made. This pit, by the way, can speak of a grave. This is a very interesting little concept here. This is where we get the phrase, he has dug his own grave. In other words, he dug his own grave and his sin has now made him fall into it. A little slight side note as well. One of the reasons that we believe that Psalm 7 is connected to the events with the cave is that caves are also connected to use as graves. The pit here is also connected to use as a grave. Saul went into his own grave and the consequences could have been that David killed him on the spot. 
He's dug his own grave. So how does David deal with injustice, with slander? This is a great prayer, a cry for deliverance. I'm saying help. A time of self-examination. How am I acting with integrity? A request for support. Okay, God, I've looked at my own heart. Now it's time for you to get up and do something. And then a long confidence in the justice of God. But is there more to the story? Now that alone, verses 1 through 16, is a tremendous set of tools with which to meet injustice. And honestly, if you wrote down that little outline of four ways to pray and you just put it in a file folder or, or in an electronic document somewhere that says, when I'm slandered, here's how to pray. You will thank yourself later for having this because uh, you'll only remember the first part, the cry for help. But David takes us to another concept that's so high, so lofty, so majestic that I think this concept alone can carry you through a time of injustice. Verse 17. I will give thanks to Yahweh according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of Yahweh Most High. David finishes this psalm by singing the praise of Yahweh Most High, Yahweh El Hyon. What's the significance of this? Well, I, I want to work my way to this because I, I want to use some other instances of God being called the Most High in just sort of a representative survey. And what you're going to see is that when God is called the Most High, it represents His greatness, His might, His inability to be affected by anything, His impassibility uh, that uh, theologians call it. And it puts together a picture. Let's just put together this picture. Genesis 14, 20. Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So most high, God's power over enemies. 2 Samuel twenty two fourteen. 14. Yahweh thundered from heaven and the most high gave forth his voice. This is God's thundering voice as the most high. Numbers 26, 16. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the most high. This is the all-knowing nature of the most high. So you have power, you have thundering voice, you have his all-knowing nature. Psalm 18, 13. Yahweh also thundered in the heavens and the most high gave forth his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. What are those? Those are the vessels of death we talked about earlier. That he has every vessel of death at his disposal. The creation of the instruments of these vessels of death by whom? By the Most High. You have the, he's powerful. He thunders. Creations of vessels of death. He is all-knowing. Psalm 21, 7 and 8. For the king trusts in Yahweh and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out all those who hate you. Again, the, the all-knowing nature, the all-seeing nature of the Most High. Psalm 46.4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. The coming certainty of a city of God on earth is the dwelling place of whom? Of the Most High. Now, how can he predict this? Because he's all-knowing and he's all-powerful and he thunders. Psalm 78.35, they remembered that God was their rock and the Most High God, their Redeemer. The redeeming work of the Most High. Now I put all this together. 
his all-knowing nature, his all-powerful nature, the fact that he thunders in judgment, the fact that he creates vessels of death, the fact that he can accurately predict that he will rule the world from the city of God, put all of that together, David's reference to Yahweh Most High speaks of his total, unshakable belief. You're already mouthing the words that God is sovereign. That's what Most High is that he's sovereign, that there's zero chance, zero possibility of God failing to execute justice. Now, I think with most or all of you, your challenge is not so much believing the sovereignty of God. I think our challenge is believing that our sovereign God will carry out justice when we would like him to do so. That's our challenge, particularly when justice might not be carried out in this lifetime. Let me ask you this. Can you trust the Lord enough to know that you may go to your grave with slander still unaccounted for? That you may go to your grave with someone thinking poorly about you in a way that was wrong, that was, that, that was not correct? Well, if you believe in the sovereign God, your death is really a, a minuscule little detail. It's just an asterisk in the overall scheme of what God will do. And I would lead you back to verse 7. Let the congregation of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. Will that happen? Yes. There will be the Bema seat judgment where all believers are brought together and they're rewarded according to their faithfulness. There will be the great white throne judgment where all unbelievers are brought together and they're rewarded according to their unfaithfulness. It will happen. Our challenge is trusting God now, listen carefully, as if justice has already occurred. By the way, that will have another effect on you. If you trust the Lord as if justice has already occurred, you can look on the one who has slandered you. You can look on the one who has reviled you with much more compassion. The way you look at them now is, man, the clock is ticking for you. Do you not know that you're going to stand before the Lord and the truth will be known? And to be able to say in your heart, I'm not afraid of that, but you need to be. So what do you do if you have trouble trusting God for justice? Go to Psalm 7. You use it as a guide and you cry out for deliverance. You examine your own heart. You ask the Lord to support you and you have great confidence in justice. Then what do you do? You go to Psalm 8 and say, Oh, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's a good place to end. Let's pray together. Our Father, I I know, having been uh, shepherding long enough to know that every single person, at one point or another, deals with what they at least perceive to be injustice, and it may actually be. And it is a hard thing. I pray, first of all, Lord, that we would all have the remembrance to, uh, rather than falling back on immediate anger and going right to a sinful response, that we would first of all cry to you for help, that we would sink to our knees immediately. I also pray, Lord, that you would teach us to examine our own hearts, to be those that examine our integrity and see this time as completely given by you as a test in order to help us to hone our integrity, to respond to injustice with grace, 
with mercy, with kindness, to pray for those who persecute us, to pour hot coals on the heads of those that would treat us as enemies, to treat them with kindness, with pity, with compassion. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be those that cherish and love Philippians 2, to consider others as more important than ourselves. And if we will do that fully, then truly no slander, no injustice, no uh, lack of truth can affect us because we trust that justice is coming and we need only wait quietly. Psalm 27 reminds us that it is good to wait on the Lord and I pray you would give all of us the strength to do that even unto the end of our lives. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.